Thanks for joining us here on Service of School Stories. Your hosts for this season are Alec Emmert, Service of School CEO and Navy veteran. And Sydney Mathis, Chief Program Officer and former College Admissions Officer. This season will cover topics as it relates to higher education, military service transition, and career opportunities and outcomes for veterans. Join us as we share student stories, inside tips from the admissions office, and conversations with employers actively hiring student veterans. Here we go. All right, welcome to the podcast. Today, um, our guest is Adrian Perkins. He is a native of Shreveport, Louisiana, a 2008 West Point graduate where he was the first African-American class president in the institution's over 200 year history. He went on to serve as a field artillery officer in the army and earned a bronze, uh, bronze star for his tour of duty in Afghanistan. After leaving the military, Adrian went on to Harvard Law School as a Tillman scholar where he was once again his class president. After law school, Adrian went back home to Louisiana and successfully ran to be the mayor of his hometown. He went on to be Louisiana's Democratic nominee for Senate in 2020, where he was endorsed by President Obama. Following his term in office, Adrian went on to the University of Chicago, where he was a Pritzker Fellow. He is currently working in private equity and serving on Services School's Board of Directors. Adrian, it is such an honor to have you on the podcast. You have some pretty impressive uh, accomplishments, and I'm sure our listeners are wondering about the path you took to get you where you are. So we'd like to just hear a little bit about your background, what drew you to the military, and, and uh, some just uh, stories from your time in service. Yeah, not a problem at all. And thank you, Alec, for having me. You know, I'm a huge supporter of services school, have been that way for a while. Uh, but in starting off, my path was right here where I sat today in Shreveport, Louisiana. I was born and raised in a neighborhood here named Cedar Grove. Uh, it's one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city, very high crime area as well. Um, my mother was raising me and my two older brothers by herself. Uh, my father left when I was about three years old. Um, and we did not have many resources at all, but my mom more than made up for that with the values that she instilled in us. And by the time I was in high school, I was an all-state athlete, was being recruited by a lot of different colleges and was trying to decide where I would go. Um, I thought I would go to LSU, um, but my mom has a saying that uh, if you want to tell God a joke, tell him what you have planned. That was my plan. And I ended up, uh, 9-11 happened when I was a junior in high school, uh, sadly. And that morning is when I decided to um, do more than just entertain West Point. I decided to commit to West Point uh, because I wanted to go and protect our country and from the people who uh, committed those atrocious attacks on us. So decided to go to West Point, went to West Point, uh, graduated, uh, commissioned into the field artillery, deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, transitioned from the military to go to uh, Harvard for law school in 2015 and decided to bypass the corporate law route that most uh, people from my law school go on and come back home to continue my service, uh, my public service. Now, that's it's such an impressive story. So you went to went to West Point, became the first African-American class president in the institution's history, served your country, went to the most prestigious law school in the country where you're again, your class president, and then decide to go back home and keep serving. So that is just such a, a motivating story. Um, truth be told, I had, I had heard about you um, before we ever met before um, I took on the role of services school CEO. And uh, again, I found that that story so impressive. And it's uh, an honor to uh, to meet you and get your perspectives here. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on um, right off the bat was the fact that you were the first uh, African-American class president in West Point's history. 
Um, and I'd like to hear a little bit uh, about that ex uh, experience and how it's motivated other African-American cadets to follow a similar path. Yeah, so just, you know, correction, I, I'm the first graduate. So there actually was a African-American class president in 1988, but he only he only stayed at the academy, I believe, for a year and left. So from 1988, he was the class of 88. So 30 years later, you know, you actually had me show up and um, ended up obviously graduating. Um, and to be honest, I didn't even know that I was the first person to be, you know, or the second uh, to be the class president of West Point. It was years later after I'd been serving when my class historian, we went to some alumni events and and, and they made a comment that, hey, I, I don't see a lot of other African-American class presidents. Um, you know, I'm going to do some research and see how many are became before you. And we figured out that it was it was nobody. At the time, we couldn't find anybody because obviously the, the previous never graduated. Uh, so um, I think that speaks to the academy. I think it speaks to my classmates. Um, I think it speaks to my drive that it wasn't even something that I was trying to attain. Uh, it wasn't something that my classmates were conscious of. It was just that they chose me because they thought I would be the best leader for our class. So um, that obviously kind of perpetuated my platform once that did become news. And, you know, I've been trying to do be the best spokesman I can be for the academy and for the African-American graduates. Uh, since that day, they put a little bit more weight on your shoulders for sure. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's awesome. And I remember, I think we we had talked about this earlier, but you said there there have been more African American class presidents um, since you served in that role, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think we're up to seven or eight right now. It's it's been it's been a lot. And I think once you see it, uh, you know that kind of. It, it kind of uh, has some implications on the, the, the first in 1988 because he was at the academy for such a short amount of time. There wasn't a lot of other African-American cadets that could see him in that position. And then nobody else came after him. But because I was there for four years, it was already two other African-American class presidents on campus before I left. Um, so once you see it and you know it's possible, uh, I think you have more people to come behind. And I do everything that I can to mentor those class presidents even to this day. Um, you know, as, as graduates, as recent as, as three, three years ago that I'm still in contact with uh, to not only give them mentorship about being class president while at the academy, but also give them mentorship on what it's like to be a junior officer in the Army uh, and just career path in general. So, uh, yeah, a lot of came behind me. Uh, I, I would hope that I had a little bit something to do with it. Um, and they have been uh, phenomenal cadets and phenomenal officers as well. That's uh, that's such a cool story and so, such a big inspiration. And um, just just going back to the, you know, the fact that you served as a class president and you touched on your experience growing up, um, seeing 9-11, was, was service something you would always aspire to, um, leadership specifically in terms of peer leadership, inter like how you served as class president? And um, if so, what, what in your, uh, your, your childhood um, motivated you to pursue that path? Yeah, I got to start from the very beginning, uh, and that's with my mother. Uh, my mom worked two jobs to take care of me and my brothers. Uh, she also was able to earn her bachelor's degree as well to show us the importance of education. And she essentially lived 24-7 for other people. Uh, there was no fun in her life. There was nothing that she did selfishly. There was nothing that she did on her own. Uh, so my first example of leadership was through my mom and watching somebody sacrifice everything for her children. Um, that didn't immediately resonate. I didn't immediately know what to do with that until I got into high school and I was already um, 
playing a lot of sports. I was already team captain of our track team when I was a freshman. Uh, and my leadership opportunities expanded beyond sports when I decided to run for class president my sophomore year in high school. Uh, and I was able to see that, hey, you know, I can help not only people be better track athletes, but I could also help my class, you know, be more cohesive, have better events. And it was those little, you know, little opportunities of service when I was like, OK, I, I really enjoy helping others. Again, I did not plan on having military service until 9-11 happened. Uh, but once 9-11 happened, knowing the experiences that I already had, I had a lot of confidence in myself to be able to go out and fight for our country uh, as honorably as possible and continue service on a much larger platform. And everything after that has just, you know, come afterwards. It hadn't been this grand scheme or grand plan of mine. And I have to I have to tell people that all the time because they, they look at my resume and they think that I like plotted these points out. And that's actually not what happened at all. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've very much stepped into the challenges that have come next. But, you know, those challenges have come next because I work very hard uh, in the present for the people around me and, and, and good things happen after that. Now, that's that's awesome. Um, and you know, that's, that's great. So you're a class president in high school, college and grad school. So is there ever time <laughs> yeah. you weren't you weren't yeah. class president? <laughs> yeah. 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 I kept the street going for a while. I did. I kept the street going for quite some time. That's it's really cool. So I, I'm interested actually to hear about your experience as class president at uh, at Harvard Law School. Yeah. Um, because um, law school is is um, kind of a, a unique graduate school um, for for veterans, because unlike um, MBA programs where people have work experience ahead of time, Veterans at, at law school are typically much older than a lot of their classmates because people typically go straight to law school. And so um, coming into law school, being older than a lot of your peers, having a very different background than most of your peers, um, how did you um, leverage your, your leadership skills and background to become your class president? And how did you effectively mentor your classmates um, as a veteran? Yeah, no, that's the all very good points. And I, I, I'm going to add one more difference as well uh, between MBA programs and my previous class presidencies. And that's um, the fact that I was, I, as you pointed out, I was older, but also ideologically, Harvard is very different than West Point. So <laughs> let me let me say that um, Harvard is much more, you know, progressive liberal institution than West Point was. So also ideologically, I was having to bridge, um, you know, make different connections as well to my peers. But because of my experiences in being older, I had more, you know, I lived in a bunch of places. So I was able to connect with my classmates that were geographically from everywhere in the country. Um, you know, I'd had more lived experiences. So when things came up in our, you know, in our case studies or whenever we were reading about, you know, various legal cases, I was able to bring real world experience into that in the classroom. Uh, so got some some, um, you know, degrees of respect in that era. And also, I would say the third thing is that um, I, I also volunteered to be our section leader as well. So I was also volunteer and it wasn't that's not a glamorous job, but it's one of those things where you're in student government and you get familiar with student government. So I, I volunteered to do additional work on top of a one L schedule. And that's not something that everybody raises their hand for. Uh, so I think those are the three key elements that allow me to be able to, you know, be in student government all three years, culminating with being the, the student body president when I was a, a 3L. Uh, but but yeah, it's uh, 
I also had to calibrate quite a bit. Uh, Harvard Law School is not like the military either. Not not just not like West Point, but not like the military either. So I had to calibrate quite a bit. And I do pride myself on being able to um, absorb points of view from the environments that I am to, to enrich myself uh, and be a lot more open-minded and be a better leader and things of that nature. So I think just having that open mind, having those previous you know, real world experiences uh, and being able to have and being willing to serve my classmates is what got me there. Now, that's that's really cool. And just taking a step back um, as part of your, your law school journey for for veterans who are interested in law school. Um, what did the, the process for you look like just from from a timeline? Because you, you said you served for for eight years yeah. uh, on active duty in the Army. Yeah. At what point did you start making moves uh, to prepare for law school, like studying for the LSAT, researching programs? getting uh, mentors, et cetera? Yeah, Alec, that's, that's a very good question. I got to tell you, I was a bit of a masochist in my process, so everybody does not have to be that way. Hopefully you all know exactly what you want to do and you're not, you know, dual tracking the way that I was. I, I wanted to do command, so I knew I would go in beyond five years. I also knew that another consideration was I wanted to go beyond my five-year commitment to West Point to be fully eligible for the post-9-11 GI Bill. Uh, so there was a financial consideration to that as well. So um, while I was in command, as a matter of fact, before I got into command, I applied to teach at West Point. I applied to the social sciences department and I applied to the um, behavioral sciences uh, department as well. I wasn't for sure that I would stay in the Army. So in addition to that, I was like, I'm going to apply to law school. It was a lifelong dream of mine to go to law school, but I figured I wouldn't get into law school or any good ones. Um, you know, just an assumption that I made. So first, I applied to West Point. I took the GRE, uh, and I did all that on the tail end of deployment and when we were doing a reset. And then when I finished and got my scores for the GRE that were sufficient to be able to go back to West Point, I submitted my packet. And then I started my applications for law school, and that ran into my command time. I don't encourage anybody to do that. Doing command and studying for graduate school was brutal. I, I was sleeping for about six weeks. I was sleeping anywhere from, you know, two hours to five hours a night. You know, I felt like I was in ranger school all over again, you know, off the radar from my family, my friends, you name it. So um, my timeline was somewhat condensed uh, towards the end because I was trying to prepare. I was trying to keep that dual track of opportunities open. Um, so I don't encourage people to do it uh, the way that I did. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it worked out for me. I eventually obviously ended up choosing to go to law school. Um, I figured that I had done quite a bit in the military and I wanted a change of environment and also knew that law school would bring me back to my hometown faster than if I did a 20 year career. So that was one of the big factors on why I chose uh, graduate school. Gotcha. And so was uh, was going home always part of the plan or when you went into law school, did you uh, kind of have an open mind and you're also looking at at big law as well? Oh, yeah. No, going home has always been a part of the plan, but I had no idea when my plan. Once again, I'm telling God a joke. My plan was to go to a law firm, uh, practice law for for years, you know, maybe decade, decades, become a partner, uh, become financially independent and then come home. Uh, so I thought, you know, I would come home in mid 40s, you know, early 50s. And I wasn't even for sure if I would run for office when I came home. I just knew I wanted to serve my community. And, um, you know, I, while I was in law school, I ran for student body president and people from home told me, kept calling and saying, hey, you should consider coming back home. You should consider running for mayor. And 
I said, all right, well, I'll try this out. And I ended up jumping to, to do that service in my hometown way faster than I ever imagined I would. Wow. And so what did the, uh, how, how did your campaign look? So were you, did you start campaigning while you're at law school or did you pick up your diploma, <laughs> head home and then, then hit the campaign trail? No, no, no. I, I, I started campaigning while I was at 3L. Uh, I actually ended up resigning as student body president for the last two months to focus on the campaign. So my 3L year, and I wasn't supposed to be doing this at all. My 3L year, I was actually flying back to Louisiana uh, for a majority of the month and then, uh, you know, on campus the other half of the month. Uh, and I kicked it off my second semester. So I was going full steam ahead uh, my, my second semester. Um, and uh, it, it's a, the other question you asked about how my campaign look is a much broader question. Uh, so I, I'll kind of shift to that too, but essentially campaigning my second semester, graduated in May and I was elected mayor by, by that November. So wow. very, very quick turnaround. Yeah, very, very quick turnaround. I'm not good with transitions. I, I try to do a little bit better out of the mayor's office and I failed there too. So my transitions are very, very quick into things. Um, but as far as what my campaign looked like, all the people that were calling me and telling me, oh, you should come back and run for mayor. Oh, you should come back home. I pretty much was like, all right, if I come back, you guys will be a part of my team. Um, so everybody that was talking to me about it, I'm like, we are going to do this. It's not just going to be a me thing. Um, fortunately enough, I had remained in contact with my community. And I tell people this all the time that are interested in going back home. Don't just show up on the doorstep with a cape on and think you're going to be able to save everything. Uh, you know, when you go back into these these areas that you haven't been in for a while because you served in the military, you served, uh, go back, uh, try to go back on a very continuous basis and do things before you run for office. You know, serve on boards, uh, volunteer, um, you know, stay in touch with community leadership, write op-eds, do what you can to make sure you study that community, you, you keep a foot in that community. And because I did that, I was able to build upon that, that team really quickly. And also because I've been to West Point, I've been in the military, I've been to Harvard, I had a pretty good network of people that I could call and raise money with as well. So, you know, I had the bare bones of a team and I had a pretty good network to start fundraising with as well. And that that uh, gave me a pretty uh, strong shot at the mayor's office. Gotcha. So you talk about the network. So for our veterans who are interested in or, or considering running for political office, what does that kind of zero to one moment look like? So you're you're sitting there in your apartment in Cambridge going to law school and you're like, you know, I'm going to run for political office. What was that first call you made to, to get the ball rolling on your campaign and how did you build it from there? Yeah, I called the campaign manager for the two previous mayors. I'd already known him. Like I said, I stayed in touch with community leadership. Um, I'd already known him. And I called him and I asked him, would he be my campaign manager? Clearly, I lacked experience in the real world political uh, sphere. So I wanted to have somebody that, you know, they lived and breathed it to be able to lean on while I was going through that process. And it took him a while to commit to me. But once he committed to me, you know, I knew that we had what we needed in order to run it, run a strong campaign. So that was the first thing that I did. And, you know, with the campaign, you need a campaign manager, number one, you need a fundraiser, number two. Uh, and you're kind of just building that plane as you fly. But you're going to need a campaign manager because you can't be in 10 different places at once. And you're going to need somebody to be able to set the strategy while you're out there shaking hands, kissing babies and you're out in the field. So those are those are the first two hires that I would recommend to anybody. Gotcha. And um, you talk about the shaking hands, kissing babies 
aspect of politics and there, there's that human side of it. But how much of politics these days is analytics? Because we all, you know, we've, we've all heard about the, the importance now of targeted advertising, analytics, all that kind of stuff. So how much of your campaign did you focus on kind of that one on one contact and how did you invest in analytics, if at all? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest, and this is a little oxymoronic. I ran as a smart city mayor, but my campaign was almost 100% analog. Uh, we did not use a lot of analytics, and and I would tell anybody when you're talking about a local election, a municipal election for a mid-sized city, particularly or anything smaller. Um, you have to get out and try to shake everybody's hand. Uh, you don't need to let analytics, you know, drive you here or there. I felt the campaign. I didn't look at numbers to see where the campaign was. I just felt it, how it felt when I went to a restaurant, what it felt like when I went to a political event. Um, and I could tell if I was, uh, if I, you know, name recognition, for instance, I started off at, I think, 3%. We, we did a, a poll early. So I could tell, you know, when I went out, if, one person recognized me and then two or three people would recognize me and then five people. And then I could tell you walk into a restaurant and everybody turns their head and there's a, a look of familiarity that, okay, we're doing pretty well with name recognition now. People know who I am. So uh, at a local level, it was all about feel. But in the Senate race, it was all about analytics because you're talking about a statewide race at that point and you can't feel, I don't know what's going on in Baton Rouge, if I'm headquartered in Shreveport and I only can make it down to Baton Rouge for a couple of days out of the month or New Orleans a couple of days out of the month. So then you rely on analytics a lot bigger, the larger the jurisdiction. Gotcha. And then scaling um, from you, you touched on that with the, the analytics aspect, but scaling your campaign from being a successful city mayor to running for Senate, what are the zero to one, that kind of zero to one moment look like for you when you were, you're sitting in the mayor's office and, and you decided to make the move to be the democratic nominee for Senate? Yeah, it was, um, it was, um, very similar. I, I, it was, it was picking my team and I needed to pick a team that once again had experience. Um, so, uh, I was working with the, the, uh, DSCC at the time, the democratic Senate campaign committee at the time. Uh, and they were helping me identify a campaign manager. Um, but with the Senate campaign, unlike a mayoral campaign, you have to very, very heavily rely on your team and what they are doing. Um, in a mayoral campaign, I had a smaller team. We didn't, you know, you don't have to raise as much money. So I knew, you know, I would say 80% to 90% of what my staffers were doing in their particular area expertise the Senate campaign, no way. You you got to be able to have trust in people to be able to operate completely independent of you and be able to do their job. So I might have known 20 to 30 percent of what my staffers were doing and they were running just as hard. So um, because the reach of the campaign has to be much broader, you have far less control over what's going on on this staff. So very similar zero to one step, but you're going to. Um, you know, quickly realize that this isn't a local race, you know, from the fundraising aspect, we raised, you know, I think uh, 400,000 or so on my first mayoral campaign and the Senate race, we raised $3 million in four months. So it's very different. Um, yeah, very different from a local election opposed to a statewide or a federal election. Gotcha. And how big were your, your teams for each one of those uh, respective uh, campaigns? Yeah, my team, my paid staff for my mayoral uh, race, I had one, two, probably four or five. 
uh, paid staff, a lot of volunteers though, dozens and dozens of volunteers. For my tenant raise, um, like double, probably tripled it, probably like 10 to 12. Yeah, that's uh, no, definitely, definitely pretty. So that that's really where that kind of, you talk about your time and command. It seems like le- that's almost like platoon leadership versus company leadership. 100 uh, <laughs> Great analogy. Yeah. An accurate analogy, but, but there you go. And um, so then uh, from from that, my my last question about your your campaigns is how did you get uh, President Obama's uh, endorsement and, and what did that what did that look like? Like you just send a cold email yeah. or how'd you, how'd you work that? Yeah, we uh, no. I mean, my, my team was reaching out constantly. Um, obviously, it was some people on my team that I worked with several of his staffers that I worked with several other electives that were really close to him. So, uh, yeah, my team was reaching out constantly. We knew that would be a huge endorsement for us. Uh, and, yeah, he, he agreed to support me, uh, you know, probably because there's a lot of similarities in us having gone to Harvard Law School. Um, and he, you know, he really wants to encourage young leaders to get out there and get involved as well. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we worked really, really hard on that one. And I don't want to take away from any of the other endorsements. we got some other pretty big endorsements as well. But that was one of them that I was really proud of that we were able to, to, to get. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I remember watching, uh, watching your, uh, your campaign ad um, where he was, uh, he was featured. So that, was, that was pretty cool. So uh, yeah. definitely had to yeah. ask that question. Um, and then, so um, following, uh, so you you wrapped up your tour in office, went to the University of Chicago um, as a Pritzker fellow, and can you talk about that experience and what that entailed? Yeah, so that experience was so cool. I really, after doing that, you know, it's my plan, and I should be careful when I say that, to hopefully one day teach, uh, be a professor, because that was that was such a cool experience. Um, I applied to be a Pritzker fellow. Uh, when I was transitioning out of office, fortunately, they took me in and I was able to teach uh, once a week. And I had office hours two days a week at the University of Chicago. And it was interesting as I was building out a curriculum and I looked at my largest challenges in office um, and I made those topics. I would take in an outline into my class on what I wanted to talk about, talk about the perspectives in which we address these, tackle these really big problems. But from the students, they... Uh, it always transformed into something that was much, much better than how we approached it and much more beautiful than how we approached it uh, because their minds, they don't have as much knowledge in their mind about the bureaucracies and about the personalities. So their ideas are a lot more fresh. Uh, and when their, their, their ideas interacted with you know, things that had already occurred in government, the outcomes were beautiful. And it made me realize like how it made me a lot more optimistic about our future and being around the young leaders, the young future leaders of America and watching them so passionately address these, these issues and, and from such a, you know, a, a place of care and concern and intellect as well. Uh, I knew that, you know, it's up to us to make sure that we expand participation in our, our, our civics opposed to, to contracting it. If we let young people get involved, uh, the outcome is just going to be better government for all of us, better governance for all of us, a better, um, you know, uh, civic society for everybody. So that was, it was such a cool experience to be around those students. They made me grow in ways that I never even thought I would grow. And it made me look at problems from very, very different vantage points, um, even having executed them in the mayor's office. Gotcha. And um, so just talking a little bit about civic engagement, um, especially with, uh, with young people, like, uh, what do you think some of the best ways, um, to get, uh, 
the youth of America. And it feels weird saying that. I still feel like I'm young, but unfortunately I'm not. (laughs) Getting the uh, the youth of America involved uh, in our democracy, right? Because we we as veterans definitely have, um, I I, I wouldn't say uh, a deeper connection than most, um, but we definitely feel um, the weight of political decisions because they affected our day-to-day life, our deployments, the well-being of ourselves and our friends. What do you think is uh, the kind of the key to getting that youth um, involvement in uh, in democracy and getting them energized about politics? Yeah, I, I think they need to start seeing themselves more in our political process, um, all the way from the candidates themselves uh, to the staff that they have. Uh, we need to allow you to be able to, you know, run from office without scrutiny of saying, oh, you're too young. Um, you know, our country allows 18 year olds to go and fight in Iraq and Afghanistan, but we, and and nobody says anything about that, but then we want to be critical of somebody wants to run for city council or mayor, uh, when they're teens. And we, the voting shows that we don't give them the deference to do that as well. Oftentimes they aren't successful. So I think if we actually, um, listen to what young people have and had to say, opposed to writing them off because of age early, we would see a lot more young people participating in our political process, not just as candidates or staffers, but also as voters. Uh, and I think that's the reason why we're seeing, uh, we often see the erosion of voters. Look at the average age of the Senate. Look at the average age of the uh, you know, House of Representatives. Uh, look at the average age of mayors. All of that is 40 plus. Yep. Uh, but we know that, um, you know, if you look at our, our demographics, that uh, that's not the mean or the median of, of where, um, you know, our active voting population should be. So I think if they saw each other more, if we listened to them more, if they saw things on the agenda more like climate change that they're extremely passionate about, they very, very much care about, then I think that we would see them uh, participating and voting more. I I tell people this, when I was the mayor, the only time I had to talk about climate change is when I was addressing an audience of about 25 and below uh, with the average age. Uh, When I was addressing older audience, never came up. Really? Yeah. Well, and I'm in Louisiana, in Louisiana. And we're, you know, clearly we are at the uh, precipice of of climate change. When you look at the the strength of hurricanes that have hit cities like Lake Charles, New Orleans, Shreveport had its first hurricane while I was in the mayor's office. So, yeah, it's uh, that was alarming to me. Um, Yeah. And and the the thing is, young people are going to be dealing with the impacts of climate change for a lot longer than than some of the older folks, too. So I I see where that that energy is coming from. Yeah. yeah. And um, and then, and then I had an, you know, another thought as, as you were talking and it's something actually I caught myself because I was talking about, oh, you know, I was, you know, we're, we're military veterans, we're more invested in our democracy, blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's kind of like a little bit of a narrative. I think I personally have talked myself into believing and I need to talk myself out of. And I wanted to hear your perspectives on how you ran as a veteran, because we see a lot of um, veterans who run for political office and they make being a veteran uh, their identity, and they essentially put themselves on a pedestal. But how did you manage your uh, military service um, and use it to um, engage uh, with your your fellow citizens and and kind of learn um, learn from each other and not really really make that your whole identity, but just kind of a, a part of your story, not your whole story. Yeah, um, I very much discourage. Uh, veterans from putting that veteran service at the forefront. Um, only 1% of our population serves. So you've got to 
really the other 99% are grateful, but you know, they're not going to necessarily be able to connect with your life experiences if you're coming directly from it. So I, I discourage it. And I mentor veterans, uh, at, in you know, various places, uh, are you Chicago is active in the veterans community. I've, um, spoken with a program with Syracuse that encourage veterans to run for office. And I always tell them, do not make it, you know, don't, don't, don't lead with it. Um, lead with being a citizen. Uh, if you're running in the community that you're from, talk about the neighborhood that you grew up in. Talk about, you know, the church that you went to, the high school you went to. Connect with the citizen on a human basis before you talk about credentials. Because that's essentially what it is. It's just a credential. Uh, luckily, I had a bit of a, some space between my military service, having gone to Harvard as well. So I wasn't, you know, fresh out of the, the green uniform, but uh, it, it allowed me to be able to talk about various things. If I talk to an, an attorney in town, obviously I could talk about law school experiences. If I talk to a veteran, I can talk about my experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. But the most powerful thing that my military service helped me with was running for office was my age. Uh, I was 30 years old running for the mayor of a mid-sized city, the third largest city in Louisiana. And I, I told people I was a platoon leader in Iraq at the age of 22. Going back to that thing where we send 18-year-olds abroad, but then we criticize them when they want to run for leadership positions here uh, domestically, I told people I was a platoon leader in Iraq when I was 22 years old. Um, you know, it had almost been a decade since then, since then. If I was able to lead in those conditions with a decade of military experience in law school, I would be able to, to lead our city as well. Unfortunately, that argument won my citizens over and I was able to be elected here. So... You don't have to lead with your military service. It'll come up. The deference will be there when it comes up, especially if it's not you bringing it up in every sentence. Uh, and you just use that as one tool amongst many in convincing that constituency to, um, you know, elect you as a veteran into office. Yeah, I'm glad. And I'm glad your community did. Um, so, you know, awesome, awesome points there. Um, want to shift um, gears uh, slightly just to get your thoughts on uh, the Supreme Court ruling that banned affirmative actions, action in all institutions of higher education except the service academies. And do you think that reinforces the value of diversity in the military? 100%. Uh, I, 100%. I think it very much reinforces the value of diversity in the military. The Supreme Court saw that this is an area that's critical. It's essential. And it depends on national security to make sure that our military looks like the population in which uh, it's fighting for and it's defending. Uh, what I can't figure out about it is why they un they see the value in military academies and our, our uh, armed services, but they don't see the value in society writ large. Uh, but, you know, that's that's something that I hope that they can reconcile soon. Uh, I think that there is so much strength in our diversity uh, in, a, in this society and not just racial diversity, but religious diversity, socioeconomic diversity, you name it. Uh, and if we actually don't consider those perspectives, I think it'll weaken us in the long term. And, you know, most empires fall from within, not from the outside. So uh, I hope that that's reconciled uh, quite soon. Absolutely. And um, then kind of on that same topic, um, we talk about um, diversity in the military and um, about 20 percent of the military is African-American. And I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on any unique challenges African-American service members and veterans face. And if so, how can military members from different backgrounds better work to understand each other's points of view better? Yeah, I'll tell you, um, I can speak from my own experiences. I was a field artillery officer. I was in the combat arms. I served in infantry brigade combat teams. I served in cavalry squadrons. 
Uh, so I was around, you know, all the other combat arms people, and there is a lack of representation uh, with minorities in combat arms, and that makes it very difficult. Uh, when my peers could go to multiple field grades to get advice and find mentors, uh, there was only one African-American field grade in my entire division within the field artillery and the 101st Airborne. So I don't have that type of um, I don't have those same type of opportunities. And of course, your mentor doesn't have to be, you know, of the same race, but they can still offer certain perspectives to you uh, that are unique and going to be um, um, that are going to be more applicable to your unique experience being a minority officer. Um, and yeah, those challenges are just going to resonate. We don't want to have uh, we just talked about the importance of our armed services being diverse and the Supreme Court even recognizing that, well, we need to be diverse throughout and not just in support roles uh, and not just in the enlisted ranks. We need to make sure that that diversity, we're focusing on every single tenant of the, mili of the military. Uh, and again, that way that optimizes our strength and it's not taking away anything. But as long as we have those type of gaps and we aren't focused on you know certain areas, I think uh, we won't be living up to our full potential and be as strong as we can be gotcha and then um just in, in terms of i guess like bridging bridging some of those gaps like some of those gaps are naturally bridged like you, you know you, you don't pick your you know you don't as a squad leader you don't you don't pick the members of your squad you don't pick your platoon commander you don't pick your company commander um but just almost just uh you know, you know social off time off uh off duty type stuff how do you think that uh units can better kind of bridge some of the i guess cultural differences um, we, we may have and get to know each other better um, and have you know, a more authentic understanding of where other people are coming from that we might not have grown up around. Yeah, the military, let me tell you, I've been a part of private entities at this point, uh, you know, plenty of public entities at this point, local, state, federal level. Uh, the military does it the best. So, you know, take this, take my critiques with a grain of salt. Uh, but just that constant time together and that exposure and accomplishing difficult things, being wrapped around a singular mission uh, brings people together. Let me just say that. Uh, going back to the diversity throughout is the second point. I'm just going to bring that back up and harp on that. Uh, if you're in, if you have a single African-American in a combat arms platoon um, and you have instances in larger society that happens like George Floyd, um, that particular soldier is not going to have a lot of people to talk to. And it's going to be very difficult for his other, you know, platoon mates, no matter how close they are, to be able to talk to him about it. So what oftentimes happens is just nobody brings it up. Uh, and that can leave a distance between that soldier and the people that he's serving alongside. So if the platoon does have diversity and there's multiple soldiers, then they have a, at least a critical mask where they can talk about it amongst themselves or make sure that the platoon knows how they feel or if they have a minority leader or, or something like that. But uh, when we have those gaps in our organization, those type of um, moments are going to be lost and can cause unnecessary division amongst us when we know that is of the utmost importance for us to have that esprit de corps and, and fight as a team. I got you. And, and that's, I uh, really appreciate that, those perspectives, perspectives there. And I think they're very valuable for our listeners. Um, because yeah, the, I mean, I, the, the military itself is, you know, more diverse um, than society as a whole. Like if you look at, look at our breakdown mm -hmm. um, and um, we see that in our service school applicant pool, um, as well. And so it's, you know, that, that kind of understanding of where other people are coming from and that, that basic empathy, 
um, of what, uh, you know, some other team member may be going through because of something that, that happened in the world, um, is, is so important. So thank you for, for discussing that. And, um, all right. So I, I know you're, you're very busy, but, um, I do want to hear a little bit about what you're up to right now and what, what is next. Yeah, I am. Uh, I am currently working for a private equity firm. Uh, that's also like a merchant bank out of Chicago named Prospect Park. Uh, it's a startup firm, and we're doing some pretty exciting work around um, around the um, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which is exciting to me and near and dear to my heart because I advocated for the IRA when I was in office as a mayor. So being able to go out and advise public entities, private entities about the IRA and make sure that we're making uh, this transition to more sustainable fuels and taking carbon out of the environment. Uh, it means a lot to me. I, I brought up the future of America. I want to have a, a family as well. I want to have kids that grow up in an environment similar to mine, not an environment where every summer, you know, it looks like the world is on fire and every winter we're deep freezing across the country. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's the work that I'm doing. It's great work. It's my first uh, real uh, instance to be in the private sector. Uh, so it's exciting. And um, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what happens next. And I, I want to be a little bit careful with it as well, because I already told you what happens when I plan for something. So I'm excited where I am. Uh, I'm also doing a let me let me just also insert. Uh, I did. I was a Prisker fellow at the University of Chicago. Currently, I'm a, a fellow at Stanford as well through their Hoover Institute and their veteran fellowship program. So still get an opportunity to do some academic research, still get an opportunity to, to teach students. Uh, so I'm straddling a little bit, but you know, life is fun and, and we'll see where it takes me. Now that's, that's really cool to hear. And, um, just quick, quick, um, note for our listeners, would you mind just giving them like a, a quick, um, synopsis of like what, what private equity is? Um, cause I'll tell you, I had no yes. idea what private equity was when I left the military <laughs> and probably like halfway through business school, I still didn't understand it. Yeah. So private equity is just like the pri private, private dog private dollars that go into businesses or into the public sector, unlike a bank. Um, you know, you have a bank, you go to a bank, you can get a loan to be able to help you with a startup business. Those loans come, uh, they're very rigid. They have certain different uh, guidelines to it. Well, our firm, we have a, a fund that we push out private dollars and we have a lot more flexibility in how we structure those private dollars for startups and operating businesses. They don't necessarily have to be startups either um, as they go out. So it, it gives an alternative way to be able to finance projects outside of your traditional banks and things of that nature. Yeah, very, very, very cool. Um, right. And that's an explanation from a non-finance uh, guy with a legal education. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't put that on Wikipedia. Yeah. Don't, and, and at the same time, then don't, don't sell yourself short. You don't need an MBA um, or finance to yeah. go into to private equity. <laughs> you don't, you don't. I'm here to attest to this. Yeah. And, and cool. So um, again, I know you are, you are a very, very, very busy person. Um, but um, I did want to ask if you have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners. So I just wanted to turn it over to you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I would imagine our listeners are either uh, in service to school or interested in service to school. Um, so they're they're looking at transitions to college or they're looking to transition to graduate school or transition into the to the private sector or public sector. And I just tell them, like, please, please, please focus 
on the journey. Don't be so tied to the outcomes because we never can fully dictate these outcomes. And if you focus on a journey and you're living within the moment, you're learning as much as you can, can and you're being kind to people to your left and right, I tell you, it's going to be the most enriching experience ever. Uh, ever. The outcomes are going to be much better. Uh, maybe not always uh, exactly what you want, but the outcomes are going to be much better and you'll have a much, much more rich life. And that's what I've gotten from my experiences thus far. So best of luck. Adrian, thank you so much. Thank you, Alec. I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. That's all we have for this episode. Join us next week, same time, same place, where we share more Service to School stories. Service to School Stories is hosted by Sydney Mathis, Chief Program Officer, and Alec Emmert, Service to School CEO. Our podcast is produced and edited by our Director of Communication, Amanda Tobias. Service to School is a 501c3 nonprofit providing free college admission support to transitioning service members and veterans. Join us next week and follow us for more on your favorite social media platforms.